The mountains are calling, and I must go, and I will work on, while I can, studying incessantly. John Muir This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same, or maybe you long to. That quote was provided by today's guest, my friend and mentor, outdoorsman Frank Escalona. So the podcast has been on a little bit of a hiatus for the past month. Um, I've had to realize I have to prioritize things, and the podcast is lower down on the totem pole to illustration work and to my personal paintings and uh, this big mural I've been doing. So I'm trying to catch up a little bit. So if you've been waiting around for the next episode... I'm sorry to keep you hanging, but we're going to try to get back on schedule here. So today's guest is Frank, who has been my mentor for the past three years. We have not hunted too much together. We've done maybe two or three turkey hunts in the spring. Um, I really like to hunt by myself, and 99.9% of my hunting is by myself. Actually, Frank might be one of very few other people I've ever hunted with. I like to be by myself because it has more of a dreamlike quality and a meditative quality. And I can, instead of, um, you know, thinking and feeling um, another with another person, I can just be, you know, purely in myself and in the woods. So I like to be by myself a lot of the times. But Frank has been a major mentor to me, especially with um, emailing back and forth regarding firearms. And I've gone over to his place and you know, sighted in my rifle, and he's helped me a lot with buying the right kind of gear and with teaching me about some of the more practical stuff that I'm not a, a so good with as, a, as an artist that's kind of floating around in my imagination. It can be hard to learn stuff even as simple as just how to clean a gun properly so it doesn't rust. So Frank has been a major mentor. And when I first met him, I was working in the apothecary for my landlady. And when Frank walked in, he came in with his wife and his two um, cute-as-a-button daughters. And all four of them were dressed so beautifully in like this vintage um, kind of hunting, outdoors, kind of horseback riding, like that, that kind of an aesthetic. And when I saw them, it was as if they were all shimmering. And I was like, I have to talk to these people. And I started talking to his wife about Jung, and I mentioned that I was trying to learn how to hunt. This was when I first moved here. And she said, Frank, Frank, you gotta, you should take him hunting. You should take him hunting. And Frank was kind of like, uh, yeah, okay, all right, send me an email. And that's how our friendship began. What this episode, mentorship, seems to be a major theme. And Frank tells us uh, a pretty a pretty beautiful story about his own mentor, this man, Roy. And thinking about mentors, 
which can be hard for me to seek out. Uh, again, I like to do a lot of things by myself, even if it takes a lot longer to learn them. And I can lose focus when trying to be taught things. But thinking about mentors has made me think, um, you know, I'm so into Carl Jung's work, but Jung um, has had this concept that people you look up to, your idols, and people you look down upon, your enemies or people you hate, or you belittle, both of those are merely aspects of yourself. So if I hate this person because of their political views or because they're a loser or whatever, that is really just an aspect of our own of your own shadow. And if you see someone so highly, that is just an aspect of your potential. So if you're an artist and you see how wonderful, you can't stop thinking about Salvador Dali and you think he's the most amazing artist that ever lived, that's really just... Uh, um, signaling that you have that potential. So I was thinking about that concept regarding mentors. And I wonder if when I saw Frank and his family kind of shimmering, if that's what I'm seeing, I'm seeing potential and I'm seeing where a part of me or my soul or psyche wants to get to. And I just, uh, hearing Frank tell this story about when him being a young boy, um, you know, in his preteen into teenage years, and how his father could only go so far with his outdoorsman mentorship that um, another man, another elder, uh, stepped into that place for him. And clearly, even how Frank says at one point in his story, that he saw his mentor as a hunting god. And wow, that's amazing. Because you're really, you're looking up to a person for your own potential, where you want to get to. So I've just been thinking that while editing this podcast. Um, we talked for about three hours, so I really chopped it down to just um, the kind of the the meat of it. Um, this might be the first episode that is very heavy on the hunting. And um, I wanted to read a quote. And this is from this book, The Sacred Art of Hunting by James A. Swan, who, um, I don't know if you could say he's a Jungian, but he certainly it brings up Jung many times in, in this book. And here's an excerpt that I have found extremely meaningful. It's called Managing the Spirit of the Hunt. Regardless of whether the hunter is a bushman with a spear, a freckled-faced teenager with a twenty-two rifle and a beagle chasing a rabbit, or a baron swinging a $10,000 Beretta over and under after a fleeing grouse. And despite his beliefs, animistic shaman, Christian, Muslim, or Buddhist, the hunter is a rider on a powerful dark horse, inspired by the spirit of the wild. A hunter is a passionate killer who shoots from the heart, embracing the dark to see the light. As psychologist Marie-Louise von Franz has written, Living means murdering from morning to evening. We eat plants and animals. Plants suffer, so vegetarians cannot have the illusion that they do not share in the wheel of destruction. We are murderers and cannot live without murdering. The whole of nature is based on murder. The realization of the destruction and the wish to live are closely connected. When such powerful energies are unleashed, discipline, restraint, and care are necessary to avoid excess. Success in mastering the potent energies of the hunt is one more reason why most cultures have seen hunters as heroes. 
for a hero, by definition, acts as a role model to set the standards of behavior for his culture. Modern wildlife science has given us laws, grounded in research, that establish legal limits of hunter behavior to maintain ecological balance. Hunter heroes abide by the laws, but there is much more to being an ethical hunter than just law-abiding. Hunters who hunt from the heart are guided by higher laws. Wow. That is beautiful. Very beautiful, very inspiring, and very um, psychologically helpful to me to better understand what it is that I've been engaged in for the past four seasons now. While part of this podcast is about mentorship, the other part is about wildness and the power of predators, predatory animals. And this is a topic I've been thinking about a lot lately, about um, predatoriness in humans and in animals. And I recently had a dream with a tiger, and the tiger came in for the attack. And in looking into this dream, I went out and I bought this book called No Beast So Fierce, the terrifying true story of the Champawat tiger, the deadliest animal in history. I wanted to read an excerpt from this book. It is mainly following a tigress, who I'll talk about later in the podcast with Frank, um, a tigress that became a man-eater. I don't want to give that away for other parts of this podcast, um, but there's one excerpt that I wanted to read from this book that I found an extremely exciting story. So this excerpt from the book I've been reading, just for a little historical background, this takes place in Nepal and in India, um, some of the Himalayas, and tiger hunting was something that was um, basically reserved for the royalty, and I'm talking about the the Nepalese royalty in the 1500s, 1600s, and then when the British came in, it kind of went from this royal, um, very ritual, ri- ritualistic hunt, kind of into more of kind of just a sportsman's uh, hunting that kind of depleted the tigers. So within all that, we learn about some of the ferociousness of a tiger. Um, You know, tigers can be man-eaters. And um, here's a tale that I found very interesting. And it's about, um, well, it's about maybe a lesson to me is to really pay attention to one's intuition. Because when you engage in the hunt and say with a very, in a forest with formidable animals, to really pay attention to one's um, respect and worship for what you're engaged in, because there can be repercussions. And that's what we're going to hear in this story here. And again, Here's a story about a mentor. So there was this this man, Jim Corbett, who was European but born in India. And he was mentored by an older man whose name was Kunwar. And Kunwar was a shikari, which meant a hunter. And Kunwar might have been um, descended from royalty. And so when the British were there, he was stripped of his, you know, his 
his ancestry to be able to be engaged in this royal hunt and was quite resentful about that. But uh, Kunwar, you know, knew everything about nature and was a real was a real naturalist and um, powerful hunter. And he taught a bunch to this young boy, Jim Corbett. So a lesson that Kunwar told Corbett was, when in the jungles, never speak of a tiger by its name. For if you do, the tiger is sure to appear. With that warning, he began his story. Now we're, we are in the early 1900s, maybe even back into the late 1800s. In the month of April of the previous year, Kunwar had gone into the jungle with his his friend Har Singh to hunt food for their respective tables. Kunwar was by far the more experienced of the two, having spent significantly greater time tracking game in the surrounding forests. But Kunwar was happy to have a companion and the two men stalked quietly through the tall grasses and dense foliage of the Garupu jungle, ever mindful of the colonial forest guards who patrolled the region for poachers and always on the lookout for the armed bandits, or dacoits, who were known to use the woodlands as a hideout from authorities. There were a host of potentially dangerous animals as well, although Kunwar had far less fear of them than he did of man. He knew their habits and when to steer clear. The first ominous sign arrived in the form of a jungle fox that crossed their path as they were leaving the village. Kunwar, with all the experience and wisdom of a Kumani shikari, immediately recognized the bad omen and suggested they turn back. It only signified trouble in the offing. His friend Har merely laughed at his old-time superstitions, saying, It was child's talk to think that a harmless little fox could ruin a hunt. To a town dweller like Har, such a thing was patently absurd. Against his better judgment, Kunwar gave in, and the two men continued their march deeper into the dense scrub and thorn bamboo of the jungle. Kunwar missed his first shot at a chittle stag feeding in the pale morning light, and Har Singh lost a wounded peafowl in the grass not long after. Both should have been easy shots, but something had gone unaccountably wrong. It seemed as if their bullets had been cursed from the onset. After an utterly fruitless day, the two men ultimately decided it best to head back. Nothing else appeared in terms of game. They were both concerned that the shots they had fired earlier may have alerted the force guards of their presence. With the afternoon turning quickly to evening, they followed the course of a nula, or a dry creek bed, to avoid the trails that the force guards usually patrolled with their illegal, unlicensed rifles, denying that they were poaching would have been next to impossible. They were right to be cautious. Their gunshots had been noticed, although not by any human. No, in this case, they had summoned a tiger. Its massive form emerged from the leaves and stood staring at them, golden eyes aglow in the mossy twilight. The men froze. They dared not move. For a terror-filled minute, they simply stood still, locked in its gaze. Then, as abruptly as it appeared, the tiger turned tail and vanished into the forest. Speechless and somewhat shaken, the men continued on their way at a pace that was no doubt considerably accelerated. Night was coming. Darkness was on its way. And there had been something in the tiger's posture that had left Kunwar deeply unsettled. He had run into tigers plenty of times before, 
but this one felt different. Its peculiar stare felt almost like a warning, a spine-tingling omen of a danger to come. Perhaps there was a fresh kill nearby, or maybe it had cubs. He didn't know, and he didn't want to find out. The message it was communicating, however, was undeniably clear. Turn around, go home. Today, this is not your forest to hunt. The two men continued on their way, walking uneasily along the nula rather than taking the road, and sure enough, the tiger appeared once again, materializing from the dense foliage that abutted the creek's sandy bank. Only this time, it was visibly agitated. Its striped tail twitched in obvious displeasure. Its flanks rumbled with the profound beginnings of a growl. Once again, the two men froze, and once again, the tiger glared at them in menace before vanishing back into the dark shadows of the leaves. At which point, it became clear to Kunwar that the natural balance of the forest was horribly askew. Between the fox and their missed shots and the sudden appearance of an irritated tiger, he knew that they need to get back on the road and out of the trees as soon as possible. The spirits were out of sorts. On that particular day, the two men did not belong there. At that very moment, however, a flock of jungle fowl rose before them, with one alighting upon the branch of a haldu tree only a few feet away. It was an easy shot, free food for the taking, and after a day of such dismal luck, Har Singh simply could not resist. Kunwar tried to stop him when he saw the rifle come up, but his warning came a second too late. The sharp report of the rifle was answered directly by an unimaginable roar. And just as he had feared, the now furious tiger came crashing in towards them through the brushwood. Kunwar, with his ample jungle experience, knew exactly what to do. Unlike leopards, tigers are relatively poor at climbing, and they will seldom pursue a human who has surmounted the reach of their claws. At the first sight of its barreling stripes, Kunwar scrambled up the nearest Rooney tree, its forked trunk and roof bark leaving plenty of purchases for his bare and calloused feet. Har Singh, on the other hand, was neither so well versed in the ways of the jungle nor so lucky. The comparative city slicker was still scrambling for a branch to hold on to across from Kunwar when the tiger sprang at him. It was not a predatory attack, simply a defensive one, of the sort that involves roars and claws rather than the spine-severing bites to the nape of the neck. But still, this was more than enough. Kunwar watched in horror as the tiger reared upon its hind legs, pinned his companion to the trunk of the Rooney tree just opposite his, and amid a mingled tumult of snarls and screams, proceeded to eviscerate the poor man with its claws. Kunwar had his rifle with him up in the tree and did consider taking a shot at the tiger, but he quickly realized he risked shooting Harsing. If he did nothing, on the other hand, he knew that his friend would soon be dead anyways. So Kunwar did what he thought best and fired his rifle into the air. Fortune, for once in the day, appeared to be on their side. This time, at the sudden sound of a gunshot, the tiger fled, and Har Singh collapsed in a bloody heap. Kunwar waited a silent minute to be sure the tiger was gone before descending from his perch and approaching his friend, who was shuddering and moaning at the base of the Rooney tree. Upon turning him over, Kunwar discovered just how ferocious the attack had been. In addition to shredding most of the bark and outer wood from the trunk of the tree, one of the tiger's claws had also entered Har Singh's stomach tearing the lining from near his navel to within a few fingers' breadth of the backbone. In just a few short seconds, the tiger had gutted the man like a fish, and his intestines were spilling out onto the jungle's leafy floor. 
Remarkably, Harsing was still conscious, and in fierce whispers, the two men debated if the jumbled mass of innards should simply be cut away or pushed back inside. Harsing felt strongly that his own guts should be put back where they belonged, and Kunwar, although certainly no doctor, was inclined to agree. Working in silence in case the tiger was near, Kunwar stuffed the mass of intestines back into his friend, including the dry leaves and grass and bits of sticks that were sticking to it before wrapping his own turban securely around Har Singh's middle to hold it all in. The worst of it may have been over, but the ordeal was far from finished. Night had fallen and the nearest hospital was still ten miles away, which meant an excruciating and terrifying hike was ahead. Despite his catastrophic wounds, Har Singh walked the entire distance back in the darkness with Kunwar leading the way, the latter shouldering both of their rifles in case the tiger returned to finish the job. The hospitals closed when they arrived, but luckily the doctor was still awake, and he attended as best as he could to the injured man. With Kunwar holding the flaps of his friend's stomach together, and a local tobacco seller steadying a lantern for whatever light it could give, the doctor stitched up the hole, twigs and all, with nothing more than a glass of liquor for Har Singh to help kill the pain. Ironically, it was not Har Singh who would meet a premature death. Despite his grievous injury, and, and slapdash medical treatment, the man made a full recovery, living to a ripe old age and passing away many years later of natural causes. Wow. That is exciting. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that story. That was from Dan Hucklebridge's No Beast So Fierce. Let's get in our conversation today with Chilean outdoorsman, Frank Escalona. I was born in uh, on a coastal town in uh, Chile in South America, and oh. um, and. I came from a family where hunting and fishing, uh, ocean fishing, was was something that my father was really into. Uh, and uh, Chile's got a huge coast, and so he he really loved to ocean fish. and And uh, my first experiences uh, outdoors were, and I still have sort of flashes of memory as as one does from when one's a very small child. Um, of of being out on this uh, tiny boat, no life jackets, uh, huge huge waves, uh, out in the Pacific, open Pacific, right off the coast of Valparaiso, Chile, and and uh, trolling uh, homemade. Um, there were these these uh, uh, basically uh, homemade stainless steel and and uh, uh, ivory sardines. Hmm. That that were lures and and uh, and we're trolling them for these uh, these mackerel called Sierra. They're large mackerel that run up to thirty pounds and hmm. and uh, huge fighting uh, fish on on sport tackle. And anyway, so those, those, that's that's really the first sporting memory that I've got is being out with uh, with my father doing this and and having caught a a large squid. And one of the local fishermen's sons was with us to sort of be boat boy and help out and. Uh, um, you know, we're running a, a Evan Root or Johnson and jo- Johnson uh, outboard, and and uh, you know, 
by today, people would look at this today and, and say it was the most irresponsible thing that anyone would do, just like we used to yeah. run around on the back of a car with, you know, kids just flying about the back seat with no seatbelts on and, and all the way life was, you know, I mean, that's just the way it was. And so, so here we were in these, you know, 10 foot swells out there in mm. this, in this uh, boat catching these fish. And I remember we, the, the, the striking memory was of having one on and then having my father hold the rod and letting me uh, play the fish reeling a bit and, and which is all I could do because I was probably about five years old. Wow. And, um, and then the other thing is that they, they caught a squid, hmm. a lot of large squid uh, off the coast of Chile, and they caught a very large squid. And when they got it in, uh, it was quite a show because the, the squid have a, a dangerous beak on them. And so to get the, the lure back with pliers was, was a dangerous situation. And the, um, and the squid decided to douse the uh, fisherman's son with ink. <laughs> Uh, as it on came, the boat? As it, yeah, as it was on the boat, it just when they were starting to, to try to hang on to it and with gloves and and pliers get the uh, hook out and uh, throw it back, the squid just unloaded probably what was you know a full couple cups of ink uh, all over this kid and just doused him and, <laughs> and it left a big impression. But anyway, so that's so that you're was, like five witnessing this. Yeah, that was the start of it, and and from that point on, um, <clears throat> I. Uh, I had had kind of a really interesting uh, visually uh, visually sumptuous growing up because my mother didn't have a car, and so we went by bus everywhere. And, and mm. just getting on a bus in 1964, you know, 65 in Chile was, was a, uh, an adventure of its own. I mean, mm. You know, every week a bus would lose its brakes in Valparaiso and go careening down the mountainside. And, and people will know Valparaiso now because they have one of the biggest – uh, sort of uh, BMX hmm. Red Bull challenges down the hills of Valparaiso because they're so steep uh, and so interesting that that it's it's all over YouTube. I mean, you can go look at Valparaiso, uh, you know, BMX, and uh, you'll see what I'm talking about. Because when I was a kid, there was no BMX, and nobody knew where Valparaiso was. Uh, and the one thing there were were these buses, and they would lose their brakes, and inevitably. Every week, a bus would go careening down these hillsides, which you'll see on YouTube now, and uh, end up, you know, killing a few people or not. Oh and and uh, it was just so. Anyways, a bus ride with my mother was a, an adventure. Uh, and, and I know I've I've experienced that a little bit when I went down to Costa Rica. There's a area called um, um, it's like something. What's mountain? Arroyos. Montaña or yeah, it's like Montaña de la de la Muerta. Oh, it's oh, the yeah. mountains of death, and yeah. it was similar, cutting cutting back and forth down those mountains. Yeah, well, th th this is like that, but it's a city, mm. <laughs> and it's still got cobblestone streets, and that's one of the reasons the bike the bike guys like it so much. It's just, uh, anyways, it's it's a it was a trip, and when I was a kid there, there were no supermarkets yet. And so you had to go to the dry grocer to get your pasta. You had to go to the green grocer to get your uh, uh, vegetables. You had to go to the oil company to buy olive oil. You, it, it was like that. And, and you had to go to the, the, uh, the uh, what do we call it now? The, the, well, it wasn't really the butcher. It was like the deli where, hmm. where they had all the cold cuts and cheeses and all this stuff. So just to, to shop for the house was kind of an adventure. Mm. And, uh, and 
That reminds me of when I visit my family in Europe, especially in Belgium. And when we would go for the summers in France, you still have the boulangerie, the, you know, the yeah. fromage, whatever it's called, fromagerie yeah. or whatever yep. it is. And you go to each place to get what you need. Yeah, it was, uh, it, it, it was, it was just a, a really kind of a rich experience for a child to go through. And, and, uh, and it was just everyday life, but I really took it in and, and, uh, and, and it was, it, it was rough. It was raw. Uh, there, there was a fair every Wednesday that we went to in Valparaiso. We lived in the city uh, just down the road from Valparaiso. And, and uh, the, the, the fair or the market, it was really not a fair, it was a market, the open market. And at the open market, you got everything from uh, a sheep that would, be, that would be butchered for you right there in front of your eyes mm. uh, uh, to clothing. I mean, it was just, just amazing. And the screaming and the yelling. Bizarre. and and uh, yeah, the, it was a bazaar. It was it was it was it was full of sound and and colors and mm. and uh, the animals and the the vegetables and it, it was just like walking inside a, a painting and and to a great degree uh, this kind of sumptuous shaping of my life uh, has made me uh, extremely opinionated in terms of uh, the what I see as the blanding of life that mm. modern uh, technology and, and, and modern um, supply chains have brought mm. about. Uh, th there's, there's, I think that there is a loss uh, of culture that, that happens. And, and yeah, of, of culture and, and just a visual experience, just wow. of audio visual experience of human audiovisual experience. Now human audiovisual experience is looking at a screen and listening to someone singing, et cetera. But it, it's, it, uh, you know, the closest thing that I could say to, you know, having that experience is, is to uh, maybe walk a street in New York, and you know New York very well, and uh, in one of the, the ethnic neighborhoods, and, and really uh, hear different sounds, see different sights, uh, colors, things, you know, and, and I think that it, it's uh, uh, for, a, for a kid that grows up in the suburbs going to, uh, mm. to a Kroger, uh, mm. it, there's there's a, a something that that misses there, and I, I don't know to what degree it's that important or not. I, mm. I, but personally, I think it is important, and I think that it, that's that fascinating. It, that's actually really interesting, and that brought up something that I've been thinking about. So, um, you're a bear hunter, or you have bear hunted yeah. a bunch. Um, something I found really interesting is right now we both of us. Um, follow this guy, Clay Newcomb, who's really big in bear hunting. So something he's been talking about was there was just this, um, this bill that was brought up in California to end bear hunting in California. And he was asking people to, you know, sign a petition to class elite to with class to reach out and say why bear hunting is important or meaningful or science based or, uh, um, or sustainable, et cetera, et cetera. And what I've been thinking about is, you know, right now, to further this statement, you know, I, I'm also in New Mexico. They're trying to ban, um, they're pushing a bill to ban trapping in public land. You know, so there's all this tension with um, certain groups trying to stop people from doing stuff that is already um, that is already regulated by biologists, is already deemed sustainable. And I'm just thinking, well, what is this? And kind of what you're saying about the dulling of the sumptuousness of life. It's like, I also think that there are psychologically, there are 
there's a collective movement to dampen wildness in, in people. So it's like, if I've already suppressed my wildness, then I certainly don't want people out there, male or female, going out and hunting a bear because that is like so wild. So I just wonder that. I wonder what's, what's the psychological motivation for, for stopping kind of just what you said kind of just brought that up to me. You know, I, I don't want to digress from where we sort of are because then we're <laughs> going to get into politics. Yeah, I don't want to do that. And, uh, and, and inevitably, uh, they play a role. In, 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 and I agree with you completely in the way you've stated it. There is a, a sense of dumbing of wildness. And, and now that we're living in this kind of, uh, you know, I, I even have sort of a hard time understanding this idea of cancel culture. But there's, there is a, a sense that um, that people are in a cultural struggle uh, of so many different types right now. Mm -hmm. And one of the cultural struggles, I think, is exactly what you're saying in, in terms of hunting, fishing, and the wildness of people. Uh, there, there is a mainly uh, city-suburban-based uh, community that is... Uh, that is attempting to cancel uh, the idea that people can interact wildly with nature. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think it's really disturbing uh, because it isn't wholly science-based. Uh, there's some very interesting things, <clears throat> even about the hunting in Africa, which becomes a very, very big uh, emotional issue, especially mm -hmm. with large animals like elephants. But uh, if people are really interested in that, they, sh they should look at um, Peter Beard's book uh, that he did, uh, End of the Game 2, that describes what happened in Savo when they stopped hunting and the elephants basically starved themselves out. Because they, mm. the, <clears throat> the problem is, is that we have uh, 8 billion humans on the planet and... Uh, and there's a side of humanity that thinks that uh, the planet can withstand as many humans as ever come onto it. And uh, there's a other side that, that I tend to agree with more that uh, uh, thinks that the planet is being stressed. And, um, and so to... Yeah. When, to I, when I look into these things, it seems like the real problem for all animals is lack of habitat. And that's just going to keep going, right? Correct. And that, that's, that's exactly, that's exactly the, the thought that that because there is a, an intrusion on habitat that's been so large, then for these people that are trying to cancel out this wildness and uh, sort of pretend that we can go back to uh, a situation that was self-regulating uh, is, is difficult to, to uh, understand because the, the, the self-regulating situation uh, is just gone. And, uh, and so I think that there can be a very, very nice harmonious coexistence mm -hmm. with, uh, wild animals and nature and, and that, the plants too, with foraging and all that. Right. Plants, forests, uh, and, but because of the intrusions that man has already made into these natural habitats, that there, there is a role in there for hunting uh, in order to maintain populations in a in a healthy way, it's <clears throat> it's sad too because people that are doing this are living in a city. But I can tell you that right here in the plains we have bears, and uh, it's kind of fascinating to know that we're 
if I if if Joe Biden invited me for coffee, I'd love to go have a coffee with him. By the way, because I, I'd like to share a lot of thoughts with the man. But but uh, uh, if he did invite me to go have coffee with him, it would take me about fifty five minutes at three in the morning because at that time sixty six wouldn't have any traffic on it, and uh, and I'd just slide right into sixteen hundred Pennsylvania in fifty five minutes. And so it's fascinating to think that fifty five minutes away from the Oval Office, we've got bears running around our yard. And uh, the thing that people don't see that are uh, trying to cancel these things out is that some of these bears now have terrible cases of mange. Yeah. So awful. I talked about that with the head of the um, wildlife, the wildlife center of Virginia. It's a wildlife hospital. It's a lot of bears, especially in the park, are getting mange and it comes in from Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yeah. And and, we had one on our property. Yeah. The dogs kind of cornered this bear that was looking really messed up. My landlady's boyfriend got a video of it. Yeah, it's terrible. It can it can lead to their death. And part of the problem is that there's just too many of them around. Uh, there's plenty of garbage cans here. And uh, so they they have an unending garbage can trail to follow. And and uh, they're not going to lack food, but they're, they're they start crowding each other. And they start getting diseases and even squirrels. Yeah, that's uh, what I was telling you. That's what I was telling you in my, in my yard that I was noticing the squirrels. Yeah. Yeah, I was telling you that basically last year we had so many squirrels that were literally eating the side of the house. And I kept thinking last winter, man, I should take out a few of these squirrels. We'll eat them. I love eating squirrels. Um, but I just didn't. And there's like, there's too many squirrels in this yard was this feeling I had inside. This year, I'm looking at the same group of squirrels I did. Um, shoot a few of them that we ended up eating and um, I'm looking at them with binoculars because they were like really scratching themselves a lot and I was like oh my god a bunch of these squirrels have mange and I was like wow this is what I hear people talking about that the hunter the trapper they they do actually have a role in maintaining healthy populations of animals you hear people say that and then you're like well that just sounds like a disingenuous thing to say to validate your quote-unquote bloodthirsty pursuit but it's not and then, so I was like, wow, like I can't like seeing these squirrels this year that like they're probably going to die this winter because they, they don't have enough hair to keep them warm. I just found that interesting that my, yeah, yeah my gut feeling, I should have followed my gut feeling last winter. Um, let's get back to you. So, yeah, we were talking about the, this, this richness of life as I was mm-hmm. a, a child. And I, I clearly remember when I was taken to my first day of school just thinking that my life had ended, and and uh, parents mm. may not want to hear this, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know I, I had this very very rich daily life going around uh, Valparaiso with my mother and and uh, and just uh, seeing all this going on and and uh, it, it was just it was it was different. It was really really rich, and so to be stuck inside a room behind a desk uh, mm. looking at someone telling me about uh, things on a blackboard when I knew what was outside the door was just torture. And mm. it remained torture until I left high school. I mean, it was just uh, 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 not, I, I was not meant to be in school. Mm. Um, was your family and, in, in Chile for a really long time? We, uh, we left Chile when I was about seven the first time and came to Seattle, Washington. And, and uh, my father was a uh, doctor and, and had a very interesting uh sort of sub-interest uh, of his anesthesiology, which was human hibernation. And so, hmm. uh, and that's a whole long story and a very interesting subject. 
uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and, and one that actually should be pursued for a number of reasons, but uh, insurance companies don't want current medicine to pursue it because it's very expensive. So we're, you know, that's a whole nother subject, right? How we're sort of uh, given what we get based on insurance companies and HMOs and what they're willing to do and not do. But anyhow, so he was uh, uh, studying human hibernation along with a doctor in France named Laborie. And they would uh, have a phone call every now and then because phone calls were a big, big deal back then. To, to make a phone call from, uh, from Chile to France was like a monumental task <laughs> in the 60s. And, and uh, so they would correspond and they had a, an ongoing correspondence and, and some really interesting work on, on this. And so because of all this, he got offered a job up in, in Seattle and uh, we went to Seattle in, in the late 60s. And <clears throat> we arrived here and... and uh, so the first impressions were breakfast. So did you not speak English? No, no, no. I didn't speak a word. Hmm. And um, so we arrived and went to McDonald's the first morning. We arrived late at night. We'd flown in on Canadian Pacific Airlines through uh, Lima, Mexico City, Calgary, Canada, and then down to Seattle, uh, Washington. And and uh, Seattle was sort of an outpost back then. Now everybody knows Seattle because of Microsoft and and um, and Amazon. Uh, but Seattle at the time in 68, Boeing existed there and, and people didn't really even know where Boeing planes came from. In Seattle, if you mentioned Seattle anywhere in the United States outside of the Northwest, uh, people would ask you, where is that? Uh, it, it just, it wasn't known. It was, it had been basically a, a Norwegian and Swedish settled, hmm. uh, logging and fishing town. And somehow the Boeing brothers started building planes there. And so there was this, you know, massive plane manufacturer going on there that was pretty much under the radar, uh, unless you were involved in aeronautics stuff uh, or, or something like that. Anyway, so we, we got there, went to McDonald's, and I uh, thought, wow, this is, uh, this is a great beginning. Milkshakes were not on the radar, <laughs> and uh, neither were uh, Big Macs. And, and so that was pretty, um, pretty amazing as a new experience. Hmm. And then at some point <clears throat> uh, during that year that we were here, because we went back to Chile, and, and uh, uh, during that year that we were here, uh, I ended up going to Eddie Bauer. Mm. Uh, and this was the old store in Seattle that sold uh, guns and, uh, and sold fishing equipment and backpacking equipment. And it was not really a clothing store in the sense that it is now. They're, they're, they had a CEO not too long ago that I was uh, – actually fortunate to meet. His name was Neil Fisk, and I think he's running Billabong now in Australia. Hmm. And he's the one that started the first ascent line of clothes for Eddie Bauer hmm. that took Eddie Bauer back into its uh, in down and mountaineering roots. Uh, Eddie Bauer sponsored the first American ascent of Everest back in 62, I think it was, and uh, provided all the down clothing, clothing for, uh, for that uh, ascent. And, uh, and then when Neil Fisk took over in the uh, 2000s, um, he wanted to bring Eddie Bauer back to these down roots and he started that first ascent line, which was really neat to see the company going back. But for a while, it was just really just a urban clothing store. Hmm. But the original store <clears throat> was on First Avenue and they, and, and, uh, it was Bauer, uh, Bauer Brothers Sports and they used to hang deer right off the front of the store on uh, 2nd Avenue in Seattle during deer season and and then eventually moved up to the the newer store where they still had all the all the uh hunting and fishing gear etc so i get taken there i'm 8 years old 
Uh, I've had these fishing experiences with my father and I walk in and there's all these mounts on the walls, mounts of doll sheep, which later played a big part in, in, in my adventures, but mounts of doll sheep, a lot of doll sheep, uh, bears, uh, all kinds of things. And I, I thought, wow, I have just walked into the cathedral. I mean, if I was, if this, if, if it, it was the equivalent of my going into St. Peter's in Rome, which I've done, and, and it, it's also uh, kind of a, a, as any big cathedral in Europe as you've been there, and, and, and uh, you know, they're spiritual human experiences in a way to think that these people have built these enormous buildings uh, over centuries, uh, generations involved in the building of these buildings to the glory of God. And, and here I walk into the cathedral to the glory of hunting. And uh, <laughs> it was just amazing. I mean, it just, it, it, it shot me into outer space. And my father uh, was not interested in either fly fishing or river fishing and or hunting. And so we went back to Chile and uh, I was about 10 years old at the time, got invited to go hunt at a cousin's farm. That was the first hunting experience. Uh, small game. I was given a rifle, and we would go out and shoot quail with a rifle. And, uh, and small game was quail, and big game was, uh, was hares. Mm. And uh, so that, that was the extent of the, of the game. But it was it, the... You know the the passion for it was as as big as any big game hunt, and and uh, that's what got me started. And there was a, a farm worker there at the farm who would take us out. We'd go over and knock on his door at four in the morning, and he would uh, wake up and and uh, we'd head out with a uh, carbide lantern. Mm. Uh, that's what the cavers use. Yeah, what they used to use. Yeah. So it's it's a piece it's mineral or something and water drips on it to create heat and light yeah they're 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 rocks they're mm. like little rocks and they go into a, a container in the bottom of the lantern mm. is the lantern's a two-piece uh two-piece affair that that looks kind of like uh those um coffee makers that, yep. that you screw on top of and and uh so the rocks go into the bottom you put a wet cloth over the rocks that starts emitting gas and then you close the thing up, and then the gas goes through a little pipe onto a onto a uh, burner, and uh, the burner has a, uh, a disc around it that's a flash disc, and and uh, you light it, and yeah, and it emits a beam. Wow, and, that is cool. Uh, yeah, miners used to use them. Yeah, that, that's how they that's how they they worked inside mines, and that's how they used to blow themselves up too in in the coal mines because. They were all wearing these uh, carbide lanterns, and then they'd get a, a, a gas emission mm -hmm. inside the coal mines, and then they'd have those big explosions. That's that's why they kept the canary, you know, the canary in the coal mine. Mm. That's where that comes oh, from. Oh, because if the bird dies, you know that there's a seepage of gas. Yeah, so they Ooh, kept canaries in the coal mines because if if the birds would faint or something, they'd go get the hell out, get out and blow out the uh, the carbide lanterns immediately. But anyway, so we would hunt. Uh, Harris and Rabbits with a carbide lantern and a old single-shot Mossberg 16-gauge uh, bolt-action shotgun that had Neat. come from who knows where. And this guy would reload his own shells without a reloading machine. He'd just punch the primer out. He'd uh, push a new primer in onto a, a – he had like a slate, a little piece of slate that was very flat – so he could push the uh, new primer in and then just kind of eyeballed some powder in there and put a wad of paper in there and then some shot and recrimped uh, 
there are these these they're paper uh, cardboard shells and wow. how we didn't get blown up at some point I don't know but but he just had a good eye for how much powder should go in there and and we would uh, we would go hunting and spend uh, two summers doing this and and I was just uh, over the top I mean, we were out every day it was the first time that I'd kind of gone into the woods and just been with my cousin having these adventures on, on this farm. And, and, uh, we came back to the U S and, and, uh, I was back in Seattle again, wanted to get out and fish and hunt. There was steelhead fishing. Uh, by this time I was about 13 and, um, had a paper route, taking the measly money that we'd make off the paper route and started buying gear. I, I, I still have, actually, my daughters have learned to bass fish with my old ambassador reel and Fenwick rod that I still have. It's sitting <laughs> right, actually, a few feet away from us. Mm. Um, and so a few summers ago, we used it to uh, teach the girls how to bass fish in the pond here. Oh, I love that. Um, how did your family get to Patagonia? Uh, boy, that's another long story. My, my mother uh, had a friend who had a ranch down there. And uh, she moved back to Chile, and then uh, she had never been down to the ranch, and and uh, so she went down to see them and fell in love with the place. And she's been there for about uh, thirty-five years. Now. Your mother is currently in Patagonia. Yeah. Okay. And some of your siblings are there. Yeah, my sister lives there too. They they uh, she married. A, she went back to Chile as well. Married a rancher, and uh, they they have a, a cattle operation and and. Uh, and she also grows flowers. They grow peonies and, and send them all over the world here to the wow. U.S. and all that in, in uh, October because the southern hemisphere has a reverse season. So when we're in our winter, they're in their summer. And so... Mm. Um, so, so is your brother-in-law one of those uh, guachos? Guacho? No, no, <laughs> no, gaucho. Gaucho, gaucho. Yeah. Okay, gaucho is the, is the Patagonian cowboy yeah, with gaucho's the little beret. The, the Argentinian Patagonian oh, cowboy. Okay. And in and, uh, and Chile... Uh, doesn't have a real sort of version of the gaucho, but Chile does have a, a cowboy, and they're called wasos. Mm. And uh, and oh, so I'm it, sorry, I didn't even know that Patagonia was broken up into different into in different countries. Yeah, so there's a, a Chile part of it. Yeah, and, okay. and 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 but most of the 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 very the southern part of Chile uh, it, it tends to to have more commonality with the Argentinian gaucho culture uh and then as you move farther north in chile you you start to see the waso uh culture kind of step in or waso tradition i don't know if i went well i guess it's what sort of so what are they all about because i find that stuff very interesting they're, i find all this cultural stuff incredibly fascinating uh they're they're basically cow cowboy people ranchers and they develop their own uh, sort of uh, uh dress and and style and and uh, some of it's uh, goes back to the uh, to the Spanish, okay. uh, to the Spanish cowboys and, and how they dress and, uh, have different, their own style of hats and, and, uh, their own, uh, style of, of, uh, leggings. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of the American cowboy, uh, tradition comes from the Mexican vaquero, mm. uh, that, that moved on up into the, uh, the U S and, uh, the 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 chaps as cowboys call them or most people know them as chaps but mm -hmm. out west 
you don't call them chaps, you call them shaps. Hmm. Um, anyway, so yeah, all these things are so, yeah, they're so interesting, you know. They, they really these, are. And, and that, that part of that uh, canceling of the wildness and canceling of these cultures uh, is inten- intentional and part of it's unintentional. Part of it is just the, the market exercising its forces on... on uh, on uh, people in terms of uh, dress, et cetera. And you go out west now and you have some, see people in a cowboy hat and T-shirt and jeans, you know, and, mm. and uh, uh, back in the 50s, you would have never seen that. You would, uh, anyone calling themselves a cowboy would have been wearing a long sleeve shirt and had it buttoned down. Mm. Uh, it just, just uh, things have changed. But anyhow, going back to... to what happened with me and hunting and fishing and all this stuff, I... Mm. Nearby where we lived was a small sporting goods store and there was a card there on on one of the uh, counter, gun counters. It was a, a guide and it said, uh, Roy Shogren, uh, fishing guide. So I asked the guys behind the counter, I said, well, you know anything about this guy? And said, you know, not really. He's just, he, he lives out in Sultan. And uh, Sultan now is a neighborhood of Seattle. Uh, back when I was a kid, Sultan was still up in the woods. And uh, Sultan was a logging community. Uh, all the area around Seattle was pretty much uh, logging based. Warehouser was there. There were big logging mills. Uh, I mean, lumber mills there, large warehouser mills, and and uh, and it was a, a very much a logging culture and uh, and sailing. Sailing was has always been a big part of Seattle. Uh, so, around the Sound, there were a lot of sailors, and then in the mountains uh, were people working in the logging industry, and then a lot of outdoors people, uh, backpacking, fishing, um, and uh, hiking, etc. Roy would have been about 50 at the time. So he's going, you know, another generation back behind. And he used to tell me, he says, yeah, you know, the, uh, I mean, I grew up here in Sultan and the loggers in, man, our entertainment was to go in and sneak in the back door of the loggers in on a Friday and Saturday night. And uh, we'd sneak through the kitchen and, and kind of open the kitchen door and look in there. All the adults were in there drinking. And then about 10 o'clock, the husbands and wives would start beating each other up and getting fights, and so that was that, that was the entertainment to go watch your parents go beat each other up at the uh, at the loggers in tavern. So, I called Roy Shogren, and uh, long story short, my father went along on the fishing trip. We fished this guy Comish River. That was the first time I ever steelhead fished. Um, beautiful river, beautiful river, and. Uh, rained all day as it does in Seattle rained buckets we didn't have any experience being out so we didn't have at the time people just wore rubber stuff there wasn't any Gore-Tex so but uh, we didn't have any rubber stuff we just had some flimsy things on we got soaked my father caught the flu after we got home he hated the whole thing he was sick for two weeks never wanted to do it again Uh, we didn't catch any steelhead because that's the way steelheading is even back when it was great there were days we just were on the river and didn't catch anything and I found it just fascinating. I thought it was the best thing I'd ever done in my life, going down this river in a riverboat, going through rapids. We fished uh, the upper part of the river, and, and Roy was a good uh, good 
oarsmen, boatmen, and and uh, and so I was just fascinated. And and Roy could see that my father wasn't going to take me out anymore. And so he told me, he said, you know, if if you're, I'm not going to go down and get you where you live, but if your mother is willing to drive you up here, I'll, you can come with me, run my trap line. At the time, Seattle had the uh, Seattle Fur Exchange uh, there, which. Uh, and people find it interesting that in 1973 or so, Seattle had the largest wild fur market on earth. Uh, and the Seattle Fur Exchange brought fur in from Canada, all over the Northwest and Alaska. And buyers came from Europe and, and all over uh, Asia. Play. I don't know if in Asia they were doing the, this these things yet, maybe not, but at least for sure Europe, they were coming in and uh, and buyers were looking for wild fur because in Europe they had farmed fur, but they they really prized the wild fur. And, and uh, anyway, so Roy ran a trap line right outside of Seattle. And and, uh, and Roy was a, a Norwegian guy, Shogren, and uh, he was about 6'2", uh, muscular, strapping, tall guy, had a long stride even at 14 when I was, you know, in just – I could run a hundred yard dash, you know, a hundred times a day and not be bothered by it. I would have a hard time keeping up with him in the mountains. And he was, at the time I was 14, because you had to be 14 to go hunting. So I'd been out fishing with him and running the trap line in that 13 to 14 year. And then he called and he said, I think he called in in the early summer and he said, hey, go get your, uh, um, your, certification so that you can get your license when you're 14 and I'll take you, uh, we'll go hunt uh, the first week of September up in the blueberry fields and the Cascades have amazing blueberry fields. To this day, there's just, you go up into the Cascades and uh, the first week of September, the berries have ripened and uh, it's just a feast for the bears and for any human that's up there collecting berries. I mean, big, huge berries, Some, depending on the year, you know, it, it, like any kind of natural crop, some years are better than others. And so uh, some years were just amazing. And then, and, and Washington has the largest population of bears in the lower 48. Uh, but we, we went on a ridgeline back into a very, very beautiful, beautiful alpine cirque that, uh, in between the uh, where, where the uh, tree line starts to diminish, and before the scree starts, you get the berry field. And uh, so we're up on this on this big bowl, this cirque, and we're on one side of it, looking across berry fields on the other side of it. And then to get across to those berry fields, you had to go down into uh, an area that had small, kind of maybe um, uh, might have been about seven foot tall. Uh, spruces and and uh, firs that were growing in there, and, and uh, so we did. We we got there and we started glassing across the uh, bowl, and and there was a bear feeding on berries, black bear, and to me that was a, an amazing sight just to begin with. It this this guy that you know, to me was kind of this uh, sort of hunting god <laughs> that had taken me under his wing. We'd gone up there and and uh, I. I didn't expect that we would find a bear, much less get a bear. And and uh, uh, so to arrive there and to out of the trees along this ridge and into and and start seeing the opening of this huge bowl, uh, and Mount Rainier looming south of us, and uh, uh, it was 
it was just amazing. Some other peaks around and, and just the, the whole scenery was so amazing. And then to actually have him say, there's, there's a bear. And I was, wow, this is on, uh, you know, this is real. We're, we're going to go and, and do this. And so we did, we started down the, the side of the bowl we were on and, and going across this kind of, um, treed meadow to get to the other side and uh, be able to take a shot up the hill where the bear was. And, and uh, as we got close, the bear started moving and he said, uh, let's just shoot from here. Sit down and just get steady and, and, and make your shot count. And uh, it w- the, the whole berry field was in a very steep uh, mountainside. And, and so when I shot the bear... The bear turned and just ran down and went into these six, seven-foot trees that were at the base of all this. And so we had to go in and find him. And I don't think I've ever been so scared in my life. I, I, I could just feel that bear grabbing my ankle from behind this brush because you're, there's, there's brush, kind of the salalish-type brush and other brush and then these, these trees, and it's thick. And so you're you're not looking and seeing a dead bear lying there. Uh, you're looking for it amongst these trees whose lower limbs are all interconnected, and and you know, and you're actually not sure whether it's wounded in there or dead. And uh, and so I think that that's the answer to the bear. I think that 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 that, that those moments. Uh, of realizing that that you can be hunted, uh, bring a whole different level to that type of hunting. So for people listening, the bear hunt might be a little bit, um, why would you want to hunt a bear? And I, I've gone out and I've tried for two seasons and I had I had the opportunity this year but uh, it was a little bear, so it didn't feel right. But me speaking personally, the just even without having ever shot a bear, the bear hunt to me is by far the most adventuresome and meaningful and incredible hunt. And just to be able to track down such an extraordinary animal and see it is has been... Uh, well, it felt like the first time I've actually had outdoorsman skills to be able to track down bears and to see them and them not see me. Um, so why? how has the bear hunt been meaningful to you? Because that's a touchy one. People understand, they understand shooting a deer, that's your food. Um, bear, it's like, oh, well, that's an amazing animal. Well, I, I think there's a, a misconception about it. Bear as well because bear meats bear meats good meat right and and uh, anybody that that hunts bear uh, is is uh, generally going to eat the bear yeah and uh, and bear meat is good meat and and when we would go out with Roy Roy always kept the meat and mm-hmm. and you know ate every uh, bear roast and and tenderloins and et cetera that that ever came off the bears and and. Uh, the one thing you have to be careful about bear, though I'll throw it in, is that they can carry trichinosis, and yeah. so you you have to either have the meat tested or you have to cook it above 350 degrees through 
And uh, so it's not something that you do a medium rare bear steak and then, uh, you know, take your chances. I mean, you can, but I, I know from later adventures down in Patagonia, uh, boar hunting, that uh, people do get trichinosis and it is, and it's a really serious thing. But anyway. Because so, it's also in pigs. In pigs, yeah. Mm-hmm. Bears and, and pigs. Um, and uh, so bear hunting, it, it's, it, it's, I think the fascination with bear hunting above all is because uh, a bear can kill you. Right. And, and so it, it's kind of a leveling game in a way. Uh, and, it, and, it, and, and it's the one uh, type of hunting here in North America that, uh, that you can actually get killed. Uh, it, it's, and even if it's a remote, uh, even if it's a remote possibility, it it exists. What you bring up makes me think of a handful of things. I just listened to this podcast on, um, the wild fed and he interviewed this really remarkable, very emotional, passionate hunter who's had a lot of Indian friends, indigenous friends. And um, talking about a lot that he's learned from Native Americans spiritually, he was like, you know, even crying in the podcast It's quite extraordinary. But when the topic of like, quote unquote, trophy hunting came up, um, which is obviously a taboo trophy hunting, like trapping is one of these taboos because it looks from far away. It looks really it looks strange to a non hunter. So anyways, this guy had a really beautiful answer, which um, he was basically saying in all of these. Um, you know, living off the land cultures, the quote unquote trophy hunt was for a man to prove that he is, can have a family, that he can be a man. And this guy who was being interviewed even said, there are men who are 60 years old, who are not married and do not have families because they never succeeded in the quote unquote trophy hunt. As in, you need to prove yourself by going out and facing something terrifying like a black bear And, uh, so there's a ritual element to it. And then I was, what that made me think about was like, when you see the Maasai, 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 the Maasai, they have to do the lion hunt and they have to kill it with a spear. And that's a ritual and that's, uh, signaling to their group and, um, obviously to potential, I guess, significant others to spouses that you have achieved some level of success and you can be, I guess, a, uh, a certain level of member of society. Um, so I have felt that just going out tracking down the bears, there's that element that this thing can kill you. And that I do think is extremely interesting um, I know a guy, I talked to a guy in Oregon who looks like he's a few years older than me and he tracks, um, he tracks mountain lions on foot. There's a lot of people who do that. They'll use dogs and the dogs will tree the mountain lion. Yeah. This guy does it without dogs and he just tracks them by reading the paw prints in the snow. And, you know, there's a similar thing here. This mountain lion can easily kill you. And I asked him, what's it like when a mountain lion looks at you? And he said, it's, it's with pure hatred. And I was like, wow. Yeah, like, wow. intense. Yeah. And you told me you have a friend who has a mountain lion story. So I, I have a, a friend in uh, Puerto Natales in Chile. 
and uh, Alejandro, and, and he runs a bed and breakfast there, and and, uh, and we've had some really fun fishing experiences with him, and uh, and Alejandro has a has a very close friend of his uh, who's part of a group of fishermen, and um, and they fish at a lake that sits across from Torres del Paine, which is that massive of mountains that is at the very bottom in, in, in Patagonia and in Chile that's very well known, and I'm, I'm sure that most people have seen pictures of it. It's just a, a fantastic uh, <clears throat> complex of mountains there that, that's, uh, again, been shown all over the place. And so at the base of those mountains is a lake called Lago Sarmiento, and, uh, and Lago Sarmiento is full of huge brown trout. And uh, I'm talking about you know, 15 to 25-pound fish. And uh, so when the bite comes on, uh, it can last uh, a few hours or 45 minutes. But, boy, the fish will just attack anything, and, and it's amazing. And so these friends of Alejandro's go back there, and they're, they're fishing to take, um, to take food back home. Uh, and and so they're they're fishing with uh, with swung lines, or they have a coffee can with the, the they take and put a, a round dowel inside the can and put a nail through either side, so it makes a handle inside the can, and then they wrap the line around the can, and then they take you know they find an old broken uh, rod somewhere in the dump, and they they just use the rod just to fling you know to help them fling the line as far as they can rather than just uh, swing it around and throw it. And, and uh, so anyways, these guys, they, they, they get together and, and uh, they'll carpool out there and, and uh, hike back into the back of the lake, which is kind of a difficult hike because you've got to go through this very steep uh, cliffside. And, and, uh, and, and as you're doing this, you're looking at this, this mountain massive that is just unbelievable and, and, uh, one time when I was there, we had about 40 condors flying above us, anywhere between 20 feet to about 200 yards above us, and it all, at all different heights. And it was just, it was amazing. Uh, anyway, so this one of this group of friends, I uh, had called, wanted to go fishing, and Alejandro couldn't go. And, and uh, that night, uh, he gets a call from his wife and says, hey, uh, Juan hasn't come back. And, um, and, uh, is he over there with you? I thought you guys went fishing. Uh, and Alejandro said, no, I, I told him I couldn't go because I had to do some work around the, uh, the uh, hostel and uh, the, the bed and breakfast. And, and uh, so she says, oh, I, I thought he'd gone with you. Well, maybe you went with one of the other friends and, and I'm worried because he's not back. It's 10 at night. And uh, so Alejandro called the other buddies that are part of the group and you know, they said that he'd called but that they hadn't been able to go. And then they're thinking, well, he must have headed off alone. So he called the wife back and he said, hey, you know, there's no way that we can do anything now until the morning because the, we can't get back in there through that cliffside in the middle of the night. And so he, he called police and they're not going to be able to go out there with a helicopter either. So he called police and said, hey, we, we need to get a rescue party. Uh, got a friend that went out on his own and, and he's not back. He could have fallen off the cliff into the lake uh, um, coming back. Uh, you know, any, anything could have happened. And so they got together about 3.30 in the morning and headed out. It's about a two-hour drive out there from Puerto Natales and, and uh, went past the cliffs uh, as it was uh, breaking daylight and, and uh, 
got back into the fishing area, and as they were approaching, they could see that there was something on the beach. And uh, when they got there, uh, his description was that the sand on the beach was like a blackboard uh, where this battle between his buddy who was dead and half-eaten had taken place with a cougar. And, uh, and that part of the world has some of the largest cougars in the world. They, they feed on guanaco down there and uh, that are, uh, you know, a, sort of a, a large deer-sized animal and um, a relative of the, the camel family, actually. They're like alpacas and llamas. And, and uh, anyway, so guanacos are down there. And that's the primary source of food for these animals. And, and, uh, and so this, this guy had struggled with the cougar all across the sandy beach. And, uh, and he said it was just amazing to see the struggle marked in the sand uh, and then to find them there uh, half eaten. And um, it's, it, 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 you know, it, it brings back that idea that, that these being around these uh, apex predators, these bears or cougars, uh, you know, there's, there's a danger to it. And, uh, um, and, and, and I think that that, going back to what we we're talking about, what's the fascination with, you know, hunting these animals is that because they're, you know, they're, there's a, a sort of an equalizing uh, element to it, and uh, and there's a danger in, in hunting them. And uh, so they they uh, brought in the park service, and they brought in some hounds, and they found the cougar, and uh, killed it, and they opened him up and and, and uh, confirmed that it had been the cougar that it that had eaten one, and. Uh, uh, and the thing that's interesting about that to me is that the cougar was an old cougar. His jaw was damaged. Uh, his teeth were all worn out. And, uh, and he was uh, fairly skinny. And so basically, this is an animal that, that is coming to its end and is looking for any easy meal that it can have. And so I, when, when I'm in the woods or, or uh, anywhere where there's bears and or cougars, my my thought has never been that I'm really that worried that I'm going to be attacked by a bear or a cougar. Uh, it's just that I hope that someday I don't run into that uh, that old bear or old cougar that basically is not capable of hunting deer anymore or foraging uh, for itself well, and you know decides that that the easy meal is what he's staring at in in my person. <laughs> and, uh, so I think that that's, that's the danger with, with um, most of these animals, you know, is that either that you run into a, a mother with, uh, with young or, or that you run into a, a female or male that are old and, and are hungry because they're just at a point where they can't really hunt anymore. That was an incredible story, and you told it very beautifully. That was awesome. Um, what that reminds me of is I'm currently reading um, No Beast So Fierce, which is a relatively new book about at the turn of the century, there was a tiger in Nepal and then in India called the Champawat. I think that's how you pronounce it. And it was a man-eating tigress that had eaten 450 people, uh, 435. Wow. wow. And a lot of what the book is getting into is it's when the, one, when the, the loss of habitat and um, the loss of prey and injured animals, like you're saying, the, the elderly and the injured. This particular tigress um, had been shot by a poacher 
and shot in the jaw mm-hmm. and her teeth were d- damaged. And after that, seemingly with these large cats, especially these tigers, some of these stories you read, you really wonder if the tiger is exacting revenge. You really wonder. There's some yeah. stories about Siberian tigers who've been shot at by poachers and the tiger ends up in at the person's house waiting for the poacher and kills the poacher. Wow. Yeah. But so this Champawat tiger, basically there's many accounts in India of animals that have been injured and they like you're exactly what you're saying. They can no longer eat their normal prey and humans that are out foraging, cutting wood at the edge of the woods are totally easy prey. So that is an incredible story you just told. Yeah, yeah. Wow. It was, it was, a, it, it was amazing that, that it happened. And you know, normally Alejandro, my friend, always packs a nine millimeter with him uh, when he goes out fishing in that area because there are cougars. And and uh, uh, and, and he's, he told me later, you know, he's I always told Juan, you know, never go out there without a pistol, you know, just don't don't take that chance. And did and you know he, Juan? He would no, I I didn't. He was one of the group there that that's uh, that's this group of hunting friends. But I I did not know him. I know uh, uh, Alejandro and some of the other guys. But but uh, is there a special word for how do you say cougar? Puma. Oh okay, got it. Yeah. Duh. Puma. Wow. So. Yeah, and 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 uh, Alejandro told me, you know, Juan always refused to to pack a gun with him. You know, he just just didn't like to, and and uh, and ended up uh, killed by this cougar. Wow, extraordinary. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty pretty sobering. You know that. Uh, okay, um, let's get into your bow hunting. Bow hunting. Well, so, so to get into that, I wanted to say, I recently you sent me a video of some of your Patagonian buddies. And they, it's an unbelievable video, like with a GoPro and they're on horseback with dogs and they're hunting wild boars. And the landscape is, I mean, mythological, just huge expanses with mountains in the background. These men are riding these horses. It's like, am I looking at something from a hundred years ago? And they're pursuing these, these wild hogs, um, and shooting from horseback. Yeah. And, um, so I asked you, I was like, wow, do you like you said earlier the mountains are calling. So I was like, do you even like being here in Virginia? Like how can this compare when you've been in these like mythological landscapes and you had a really beautiful answer and and you're currently pursuing hunting with a recurve bow and our environment has been a lesson. So do yeah. you want to speak to that? So uh, uh, the, the best description I've heard of it is that, that out west and in Patagonia, et cetera, we are... Um, uh, s- s- basically, it's spot and stalk hunting. So you spot the animal, and then you plan how you're going to stalk it, and and then get to it. And in Virginia, it's the reverse. It's stalk and spot, uh, because you're in the woods, and you're not going to see game way far away. The only thing that you can do, and and I don't like uh, stand hunting. I have a. a Good friend over in West Virginia, uh, Jack, and he uh, got me into a stand, and and I'm very grateful to him because he uh, he produced the opportunity for my first deer with a bow, and it was an amazing experience that we had that day with Jack, and it was you know it was uh, t- taking an animal with a bow when you've been used to rifle hunting is is uh, is, is amazing uh, from a stand or anywhere because. When you rifle hunt, 
as the gun goes off, it's a it's it's like an like an announcement of this big event that's just happened. It's like a a huge thunder. Uh, it's this, like shattering the woods. Yeah, it, yes, that's a really good description. You 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 shatter the piece of the woods with the taking of this life, and somehow, and you might have been sitting there in silence for eight hours, ten hours, and you've like shattered that moment, right? With the like you said the the power of a god. I mean thunder. Yeah, it's like a it's like a thundering that goes off, and you've just taken this life, and uh, and. Uh, and, and it's like this big announcement that happens, you know, and uh, um, and with a bow, there's no sound, har- hardly any sound at all. Just the passing of the string through your fingers, and and if you've done it right, uh, that that will be very, very little sound. Uh, and the animal uh, is passed through. With the arrow, I use very heavy arrows, uh, and and uh, they they'll go right through a deer, and <clears throat> and because I'm a, with a recurve, the the shot's going to be within thirty yards, and so you're very close to the animal, so it's a very very intimate thing, and that first deer, to have shot it with the bow, and it was so silent, it felt almost evil. It was like uh, it was like some kind of a you know like a a stealth thing that you that one had done, and, you know, and hunting stealthy to begin with, but the gun somehow seems to break that whole uh, moment. Wow, and, that's so fascinating. What do you mean, evil? You mean it's just too secretive? Yeah, it was almost like too secretive, like wow. like uh, like like uh, uh, sneaky, you know, some, mm. but sneaky kind of in a weird way. And and I and it, again, it's because the gun some somehow breaks that. Because the stock is the same, you know. You're and I've always liked to shoot very close. So I, I, with a rifle, I if I could get within fifty yards, I'd rather be at fifty yards. And um, <clears throat> just because I I find the stock fascinating, that's to me the excitement is the stock, uh, the 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 ability to get close to an animal, and it and it makes the the hunt more fair. Uh, I I don't I I appreciate what it takes to shoot long distance with a rifle and these people that are shooting five to a thousand yards, 500 to a thousand yards. I think it's, uh, it's a fantastic discipline to be able to, to get into, to shoot at that distance. But I don't necessarily agree with taking, uh, big game animals at a thousand yards because I think it's kind of, uh, it, 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 the animal doesn't even know you're hunting it. It doesn't, you know, that there's, it's, 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 the next thing someone's going to do is fly a drone, you know, yeah. with a with a with a gun on it or something. I, I just don't know. I, so back uh, so back to the bow experience. So the bow experience brings you in so close, and and it, it it's a it's amazing to be. I I've been within a couple yards of a doe, you know, uh, in the here in the Virginia woods, and so after the the. Uh, deer stand experience, which I, I, I respect anyone going up in a deer stand, by the way, because I went up into this thing. It was about a 35-foot high stand uh, in, in the middle of the dark uh, at about th- four in the morning. And, uh, and just climbing up to that stand was kind of an experience. <laughs> I did my first stand this year. I went to someone's hunting camp 
And uh, I feel the same way you do. I hated being in the stand. I just hated being confined. I hated the idea of just sitting in someone else's spot. I feel like, don't I need to prove that I can find a deer? I don't want to just be where other people know they're a deer. Um, I just didn't like it at all. And I, once I came back to the ground, even though it's much harder and you have much less visibility, I just felt grounded. Yeah. 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 I, 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 I'd rather, uh, stalk and spot Mm -hmm. and, and uh, again, I, I I have a huge amount of respect for anyone climbing up in a stand because by the time I got in the stand, got turned around and got sat down, my palms were sweaty. <laughs> so, so you know, and I did I did hook onto a harness, which mm. which uh, made me feel a lot better once I was harnessed in because sure. I, if I get overly excited here with a deer coming, I might just fall out of this thing, and that mm-hmm. wouldn't be good. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've been in uh, mountain hunting where I've been walking along 1,500-foot uh, cliffs and, and on little paths that were no more than about, a, you know, six or eight inches wide. And uh, I think I was more frightened being up and uh, getting up in a deer stand <laughs> than I was walking on those cliffs. Wow. Uh, but anyhow. So, you, so, so you've mentioned that the bow hunting seems to be has taught you more of this meditative Zen. I uh, picked up a book called Zen and the Art of Archery, which is kind of a, a Bible among archers, and most everybody's read it. And uh, a German philosopher that went to study in Tokyo back in 1924, and he, and he picked archery as one of the Zen disciplines uh, to understand um, Zen. And, and his wife went with him, and she picked uh, flower arranging uh, and and as there, there's a number of disciplines in Japan that you can uh, use to lead you into Zen and and uh, and uh, archery is one and and uh, and then there's calligraphy is another one. Um, I believe that painting is one as well. And and uh, uh, I'm not sure if swordsmanship is it. It, uh, it might be one of the other ones. But uh, anyway, so so what does that mean? The the Zen side of it is is that in order to really, for me, in, in order to, to, to really execute a shot well, you have to enter into a, a mental space where everything else is gone. You have to really eliminate uh, the nagging this or the problem that or the this or, the, you know, or, or, or I've got to be... Uh, going in five minutes or I've got, you know, all that has to go away and you have to be in a, in a, in a head space where the only thing that exists is that point that you're trying to hit. And, um, there's a, uh, famous, uh, archer. Oh no, his name has escaped me. Um, he's, uh, down in Louisiana and uh, anyways, he, uh, he exp- uh, said it so well one time that, because he, he'll shoot a, a uh, lifesaver out of the air. Wow. With a bow. And, um, a lifesaver that's falling? Yeah. It, wow. His, his, his wife or his son will throw up a lifesaver and then he'll shoot it as it's falling no. down out of the air with a 70-pound bow. And, uh, and at, at about 10 yards. I mean, you know, he's not going to do that at 100 yards because he doesn't have... You know, and and it proves it proves too that you know you could never sight. 
You could never align sights and aim at that lifesaver falling out of the sky. It's an intuitive feeling. It, it's it's your a body. Your, your 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 body having developed a draw that is so exact every time that what comes out of that bow is going to be exactly coming out every time. And so that your eyes know that that's going to happen. And so over time you train yourself to draw and look. And if you can look precisely at your target, your arrow is going there. And so the Zenness is to get everything out of your mind and create an absolutely clean pathway between your eyes and the target. Mm. And then not thinking about releasing, not thinking about anything else, just being, just being, and being in a place where you're comfortable existing at tension with the bow, because the bow puts your body under an extreme amount of tension. And so to be able to relax... And it's kind of counterintuitive because you're saying relax. Well, how can I relax when I've got 70 pounds pulling on me? But you have to. And that's the key. That you, that, and that's the zenness. You have to be able to enter in a headspace it's where... It's like body, mind, and soul all connected in this Connected in this, in this movement of, mm. of opening the bow. And, and uh, as, as archers, uh, very good archers say, and getting inside the bow... It's like you you get yourself inside the bow and then you're there and you're letting your eye focus on the center of where you're trying to hit. And and um the archer that I was trying to remember his name is Byron Ferguson and uh and he said one time that this is a guy that shoots the lifesavers out of the air and, and he said the center of a aspirin is as big as the center of a basketball. And that's because they asked him, well, how can you shoot an aspirin out of the air? Because he does that too. Um, and uh, and, he's, and, he, and that's what he said. He said the, the, the center of an aspirin is no, no larger than the center of a basketball. So you're, you're always just aiming for the center of, what you're, of the spot that you're trying to hit. And, uh, and so that, that, that's the Zen side, is that you get everything out of your mind and so there's there's a there's a moment there where you're holding looking at the target and when the shot happens right when the shot breaks as they say correctly it's as if you didn't know it happened it's a surprise to you you're looking at the target and then suddenly poof the arrow flies and you go wow i i didn't consciously do that and it lands dead, dead center of the target. I've experienced that with, with rifle and shotgun hunting, with a turkey yes. and with deer, where I almost don't know, I almost don't know who pulled the trigger. Like, I almost feel like I didn't do it. Like, some instinctual part of me, spirit part of me, I'm not even really sure, has done the act. And I'm surprised that it, it has been perfect. And I'm yeah. almost, well, who did that? Philippe didn't do that because... I wasn't even really thinking about aiming properly. I wasn't thinking about my breath. Like it just happened. And then I'm like, whoa, wow. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the Zen moment. And, and so the, the Zen master, Japanese Zen masters that shoot bows, they say that it shoots. You don't shoot, it shoots. And it isn't the bow. It is the, the moment 
Wow. It is the the it is the all I guess that's the word. It is the all. Mm. The all of it mm. shoots. Wow. You don't. And so the whole uh effort is to get to the point of being part of the all and uh and not consciously being a piece of what's going on. You're just part of this whole moment that happens as a as a perfect moment. And when it does, it's really and and you and, and to feel a perfect shot with a bow is really gratifying. I mean it's just when it happens perfectly, it's just it's beautiful. It's just a feeling mm-hmm. that is is uh very difficult to explain. Um and so the 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 bow led me into the Virginia woods. Uh, it's the whole idea here uh, coming out of the, and I kind of joke with friends now. I say, Hey, you know, my ancestors came out of the trees 4 million years ago and I'm going, not going back up them. (laughs) (laughs) So I, you know, I, I came out of the trees 4 million years ago and I'm staying down in the woods. Uh, all those that want to regress into stands are welcome. (laughs) But anyways, uh, so I, I am in the woods, and the Virginia woods are dry. They're noisy, and you have to stalk and spot because you're not going to see game. You're going to be moving through the woods, and the game is going to be moving, and you're going to intersect with game, and you're not going to track a deer or you're not going to track up to a bear in the Virginia woods because – that animal's in motion and there's no way that you're going to come through these crackling woods and get that close. And so you you have to, and I shouldn't say that because there, there are times when you can actually approach an animal, but, but uh, generally you're going to be moving through the woods and you're going to intersect with an animal. And it forces you to move very slowly because you have to, uh, as you move through the woods, your horizon is constantly changing. You're you're actually seeing more or less of of your horizon, and so with every step you take, you have to evaluate the whole horizon again and see if there's any movement because that's what you catch first. Is always some kind of movement. You rarely will see uh, a completely still animal and and pick up uh, a, a spot of color or something. It's usually movement, uh, and and so. Uh, you have to see the animal first. If they see you, it's finished. And it becomes an amazing dance to see how when you do slow down, and I mean slow down to take a step, look at your whole horizon line, which may take you a minute or two, and then take another step, find a tree to, to stand by for a while, always trying to use the trees. And so it's just it's a wonderful experience to be in the woods all day and really you know, maybe walk a quarter of a mile at most. Um, and just to activate those muscles, to walk slow like that and to balance on your legs is, you know, you don't really, that's not what you do with your legs in normal day. Yeah. No, it's it's interesting because you're under a kind of isometric type uh, work with your legs, uh, balancing and, balancing. and checking checking the, the ground so that you're not going to step on a stick and break it or uh, uh, anything like that. And it's interesting, I, I've enjoyed uh, hunting in the late turkey season. And uh, going after and, and finding turkeys in in uh, just in the woods because you can't call them in the winter time and and uh, it's interesting to be able to get close to turkeys 
without calling them because it's doable, but you have to just move ever so slowly. And again, you end up intersecting with them at some point and, and getting within bow range. Um, the bow, again, it, it's just a whole different story. And so now I've become very, very uh, uh, interested and focused in bow hunting. The whole idea of getting close to animals has become even more paramount than it was before. And uh, it, it, it's, it just brings a whole level of, of woodsmanship and spirituality into the, into the game because you have to be much more careful. And you, you have to really tune in to the noise you're making, into the steps you're going to take, into what's over the horizon line on a very, very uh, a different level um, than, you, than you do when you can shoot, you know, something 150 yards away. Um, and I've had some really neat experiences with the bow. Uh, this, I took a buck this year on the ground, uh, which was really uh, just a... a, a you know, the, everything came together just just the right timing. That had a, intersected with a buck that had actually seen earlier go a, another direction, and then he he came back through the woods where I was and w- was able to to uh, stay concealed. and uh, And it's amazing how it, with camo on and and uh, face paint on, you can actually stand next to a large tree and and have an animal like a buck go fifteen yards, twenty yards from you. And uh, and as long as the wind's correct, uh, you're you're not. They don't uh, notice you, uh, and, and it's just a thrilling thing to be able to be that close to to these Wild animals. Animal. Uh, so we're uh, in Argentina. I took a bow uh, with me, and and with this friend that I mentioned, Lucas. We're you know, Lucas is the one that Philippe was talking about. It has hounds down there, and his hounds are actually from here in Virginia and up in New York. They're foxhounds, and he uses them to to uh, hunt uh, wild boar off horseback with a forty five uh, revolver, and uh, they'll they'll uh, run down a boar and and uh, on the run horseback and come up on the boar and and shoot it with a revolver and and right off the horse as they're running, and uh, that's the video that Philippe was was mentioning he saw, and it is really impressive to see these guys on horseback uh, all out over terrain that is unchecked and and uh, just uh going so uh we i took the bow and we went with lucas and and uh uh spotted and stalked some uh wild boar and was able to take a wild boar at about 15 yards with the bow and and it was amazing uh to get in close and then be on my knees and crawl around this bush and shoot from my knees and uh, and have this arrow uh, completely pass through this boar, and on the way through, uh, took out his uh, uh, far side shoulder, and uh, so he went down right away. And it was just it was an amazing experience because a, a wild boar like bear are dangerous, and uh, so it, it's it's thrilling to be able to to get within fifteen yards of something that can actually turn and charge you. Uh, and uh, and take a shot with a bow, and, and there's something really uh, primal about it. And uh, I'd also taken boar with a rifle with with the same friend Lucas, and uh, we we were stalking, and I was with the ref. We got in about 30 yards of of these uh, boar, and um, and uh, 
took a shot offhand at at it and and killed the bow. I mean the boar. And um, but when when the boar when the bullet hit the boar, the boar turned and and saw us and came at us. And I went to chamber a second round. And as I as I cycled the the uh, bolt back, I didn't clear the rounds in the magazine because everything was happening so fast. And so I didn't get back far enough so that the bolt could catch the rim of the uh, of of the the brass and cycle another shell into the chamber. And so I pushed the bolt forward without a shell and aimed at the bore that was running and the rifle went click. And in the in the in all this is happening in milliseconds, you know, and in an instant it's all so clear in your mind, oh my God, I didn't get the bolt far enough to pick up the next round. I don't have a shell. And I was standing there with my rifle and I'm thinking I'm going to grab it by the barrel and use it as a bat when this thing gets to me. And, uh, and it, was, it, it was kind of funny because I, I'm, at first I'm holding the rifle. I realize that there's no shell in there. And then I'm like a little kid. <laughs> what do I do now? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> like a little ninny. <laughs> what do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> and then the lucky thing is with the, the, the boar expired about three feet in front of me. Wow. And, uh, and you know, and, and we shot him at 30 yards. And so for all this to happen, it's just you're talking about a second and a half maybe. How, and, big, and, are, how big are these boars? Uh, oh, this one was probably a couple hundred pounds. Big. They're big animals. Are they native there? No, they were taken there from Russia. And uh, and they're, they're European wild boar and, and they've just propagated all over Patagonia, just like red deer uh, that were taken there from Europe, from Germany, I think, and, and uh, have you know propagated all over the place. And uh, the cougars were native there, and, and uh, so all, all this red deer population has just provided the cougar with uh, plentiful food, and so they've, they've also uh, proliferated, and so there's, there's a, a, a quite a bit of, of cougar uh, hunting that goes on as well mm, just because there's mm. so many of them now yeah to keep them i guess them balanced too yeah there's 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 a lot of uh, ranching that goes on down there and so the cougar the cougars will take their toll on sheep and uh sometimes so the, the, there's 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 problem cougar situations and they'll they'll call lucas out and he'll come out and they'll they'll hunt is it a license system like up here <clears throat> No, it's not a license system. There, well, it it is and it isn't. I mean, it's uh, it, there's not a it there's it's. I guess it is kind of like here because it's it's like a damage control thing, like you can okay. do here as well with landowners and okay. and so. Yeah, but you definitely do have to have a hunting license to hunt, and and you're not allowed to hunt more than uh, you know a, a certain number of deer and uh, got it. A certain number of cougar, and um, have you had but, a scary moment with a bear? I have not been charged by a bear. Uh, Roy, that uh, took me bear hunting the first time, taught me how to hunt. Uh, he would always tell me, if you're ever charged by a black bear, you're in trouble because a black bear will eat you. And, and if you're charged by a grizzly, it's not a good thing. But you may be able to play dead and, and uh, get away with it. But if a black bear is actually getting his teeth into you, it's because he's going to eat you, not because he's going to uh, you know, do anything else. And I don't know if that's true or not, but but I've, I have heard read and heard of, of uh, black bear attacks and, and they seem to be uh, fairly deadly. Mm. 
Whereas with grizzlies, you hear of people surviving. They get mauled, but then left alone. Yeah, yeah. And so, but I, I've never been charged by a bear. I've had a bear run by me, hmm. shot and r- run by me, which could look like a charge, but it wasn't. I mean, they, and you can tell because it, it, they have their eyes sort of set on something that's beyond you. You know, they're they're just going somewhere else. They've been shot and they're going somewhere else. And and. Uh, um, and they're not focused on you. So I've never had a bear focused on me coming at me. Um, in Patagonia, do they um, cook up the wild hogs like how you do with the with the goats where you you split them down the middle yeah. and you put them like on a cross yeah, and you yeah. smoke them on a fire? Yeah, yeah. What's that called? Yeah. Um, That's so cool looking. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's basically a, a rack yeah. that, that is a cent- center post with uh it, they're flat irons and it's a center post with uh with uh uh an upper it's like a cross mm-hmm. with upper um post and then a lower post that slides slides so you have you have a different size sheep or hog or whatever uh and the, the upper post has hooks so that the the you know back knee tendons go in there and and uh then they wire the the backbone to the central beam and then the lower post hold the the front legs mm-hmm. and they're kind of splayed and, out yeah and the and the animals displayed out and it's angled at about a 45 degree angle over a fire that they they don't let the fire they they shovel coals from the fire under the animal and it's yeah it's a fantastic way to cook so stuff so cool and, and but with the boar you can't do that right away you've got to have the meat tested Oh, for the trichinosis. Yeah, hmm. yeah. So, so if they do that, uh, they'll they'll hang a boar and then they'll get it tested and, and do it. Mostly with the boar, they cut them up, uh, and it's it's sheep that they'll do on a on a, a cross like that. Interesting, very um, interesting. It's just uh, some. And the other thing, I I, I don't want to miss a part of it too. I've always been very interested in the craftspeople that go along with the experience. So. Uh, Interesting. Uh, my rifles were made by Alan Roger Beeson, uh, and I had a uh, you know, and, and I got to know. Uh, I met Al before he died. I got to know Roger, know his daughter, who is uh, Nopala, who is an engraver, and she's done the engraving on the rifles, and and so, uh, and the idea of ordering a rifle from uh, Alan Roger and waiting for three years to get a rifle and talking to them during the process and talking to Paul about the engraving and, you know, it, it's just a whole added side to it. And, and uh, same with uh, fishing rods, you know, we just, we're just up in Hancock, New York and met uh, Dennis Menser and he's building a, a bamboo rod for me. And, and, uh, and so the, the, the idea of, of being able to interact with people that actually build the tools that you use uh, to hunt or to fish, tying your own flies. Uh, there, there's, there's a whole thing. Clothing. Uh, I, the, I was fortunate enough to do uh, quite a lot of of uh, grouse hunting in Scotland, and they dress traditionally there when when you go. And and uh, so, I I met tailors in Scotland and had clothes. Uh, made for me there and so the whole experience of of picking out cloths and and uh and uh 
picking out how you're going to have these these clothes made and talking to the person that's going to cut the cloth and sew it and the, meet the women in the back that are the are seamstresses and the tailors and and uh it, it, it's just well that's part of that all the ritual is having the the proper vestments for the ritual of the hunt and all that preparation yeah yeah and i i i it it it's probably as you said it's part of the ritual is why why the uh, natives uh went through rituals themselves before they went out and hunted and and uh, so i i find that part of it uh, extremely satisfying uh, I, I find spending a day with a, with a tailor in Scotland going through a cloth and then communicating with them and having swatches sent from over there and, and just the whole process of picking out the cloth that you're going to, uh, the, the tweed that you're going to use to have, uh, you know, a, a jacket made that you're going to actually use for, for hunting. I, it, it's just uh, a fascinating process. And to know that it's not something you're just going to pick up off a rack, but that you met somebody that measured mm-hmm. you, that you discussed the cloth, that you've talked about the attributes and where it was made and how it was made and where it came from. And and uh, it, it it's just, there's such a richness to it. And it goes back, I think, to when I was a kid and spending time with my mother running around that uh, uh, bizarre. whole bazaar of of. of flavors and smells and tastes and sights that that you, you to for me to just walk in and grab something off the shelf is difficult fascinating i i, I uh, and so the same thing i did with shotguns i i had uh i had the ability uh i was fortunate to to have a a uh, profession that allowed me to do it and uh i I had the ability to go to Europe and meet gun makers and spend time in gun making towns and go to the to the workshops and and see the shotguns being made and pick the wood out and discuss it with different people and pick the uh, gun makers and and had a, a German friend who was probably one of the most uh, knowledgeable people uh, in in terms of gun making that I've ever met and was lucky enough to to have him help me through the process. And we met many times in, in Spain, finally, where I had some guns uh, built and also in England. And um, and, uh, it, and it's just a, a, a fantastic process to go in and actually go through a, a room filled with wood blanks. Uh, what woods were the woods that they were using a lot? Walnut. It's it's walnut. all walnut, but it it's walnuts from the United States. Walnuts black from walnut Turkey. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's black walnut, but but uh, different different kinds of walnut. And, and uh, so, when you say these gun making towns, are these towns that for centuries, for centuries, have wow. been gun making towns? Sul in Germany, Abar in uh, Abar and El Goibar in uh, in Spain, uh, and London area in. Uh, in in the UK and England, and then there's other makers in in uh, there's uh, places in, in Scotland where there's some makers, and uh, also uh, makers in the uh, Birmingham area, uh, and and uh, in England, not Birmingham here, uh, but uh, and, and these towns were uh, a bar in Spain. Uh, and also, I'm I'm not mentioning the, the, uh, Saint Etienne in France, uh, uh, Brescia in Italy, uh, in in Czech Republic. There's gun making towns, um, you know, and, and uh, uh, yeah. Austria. I have to say that you 
like how I was complimenting the way you dress. You have a very beautiful aesthetic with your firearms. You really like the old vintage look with a lot of wood. You're not buying those plasticky looking ones, you know, covered in camo. You like old school vintage things. And that's been helpful when I've been looking for my firearms. I've been passing, I've been asking a lot from your advice and because I have a similar aesthetic. I like the vintage look. I like that old, that beauty. Yeah, I, I think that, that uh, it's all, it, it, it's all part of a process, you know, and, and, uh, and so. I have to say, making, when I see people, um, when I see like modern firearms, I hate them. And I think that they, I hate that they look like toys. It looks like a plastic toy. And I think that there's something wrong about that. And it, it just looks too much like something out of a stupid sci-fi movie or it, it literally like toys I had when I was a kid. And there's something, the vintage look of a firearm, you know what it is. You know what you're, you know exactly what this is. And I think, I don't know. I am speaking for myself. I just feel as though I, I can understand and respect more of the firearm when it has a, a more classic look. I think that the thing about that classic look is that what you're looking at actually is is hand labor. It's hours mm. and hours of of human hands going into it. If you, if you can imagine the shotguns uh, that are handmade are the 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 tubes, the barrels are shaped with a file, mm. and that, that there's someone that's filed for hundreds of hours on on those barrels, and uh, and the wood has been rasped and filed and sanded. The uh, wood has been inleted carefully with, with wood inletting tools in order to seat the barrels and to seat the action into it. Uh, then the wood's been checkered by hand. The engraving on the gun, if it has engraving, has been done with a, a mallet and a, and a metal chisel. And so really... Mastery. You're, it's, it's craftsmanship. And, and, and mastery. So, yeah, it's master craftsmen that are that are uh, plying their trade and turning something out for you, and they're doing it. Uh, it's it's more than just their job. I mean, it's there. It's a it's a craft, and mm -hmm. and to, so for me to shoot with something that's had a thousand hours of human hands into it uh, is is just satisfying in and of itself. And I've met the guys that did it, and it's. When I'm holding that gun, I it, it's almost like you're with all these people that have been part of this process. Yeah, so I find that very interesting what you're saying about craftsmanship. Um, I, what the image that kept coming to me is like a samurai getting the master sword, you know? Yeah. And that's going to obviously be something that you pass down to your daughters and to their future kids and, you know, it's special. Yeah, it, it, with with these with guns, you know, even rods. I mean, I, I I'm uh, f using some bamboo rods. Uh, one of them was made in 1926, you know, by uh, by Hardy's over in in uh, England, and uh, so these things, if they're taken care of, uh, can last generations. And and, uh, and yeah, the and, provenance and, element, I think that's the right word, is interesting. Yeah. Like I, yeah. all my guns are pretty old. Like my shotgun is 1931. So it's like, what was the life of that shotgun? Was it on some farm, you know, out in the Midwest? Um, my rifle that you helped me buy, cause it was a steal on um, uh, a gun. 
a gun uh, buying website, um, was from 1957, and mm. it was used. It was owned by a uh, South African family that were farmers, and it's been used to hunt um, impala and kudu and warthogs. And uh, so I've got this rifle now here in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia with some extraordinary history to it. I've only taken one deer with it, but uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that that rifle is a <clears throat> is a is a gem, and and I've told you that it had that particular rifle. There were just a few of them that were made with those open sights that it has, and and those sights are terrific. Yeah, it was a uh, Walther Model B. Yeah, and Walther Model B. But the second the guy sold it to me, he told me, like, "Damn it, well, I, I'll buy it back if you're not interested," because he realized it was worth twice the amount that I bought it for. <clears throat> Yeah, it's a, it's just a, it's a, it's a beautiful rifle, and and especially because that one comes with with the uh, adjustable open sights that are just f fantastic. Which most of them did not come with those sights, and uh, so those were th that was special ordered by those South Africans up in Germany to be made that way, and and it, it's it's a it's a jewel. All right, well, I think we've we've had a super long conversation. <laughs> um, uh, are you still working on that documentary? about conservation yeah we do you want to still... quickly talk about that and if anyone who's listening uh has deep pockets or some powerful friends maybe they can help you fund this documentary yeah we're we're actually moving forward with it we found oh, really? some funding yeah and, wow and, congratulations uh, so, so this goes back to uh in the conversation where we were talking about muir and and conservation and environmentalism and and uh uh which is really i i think the reason that uh uh not being political, but just people, that Joe Biden was important at this point because uh, the uh, the environment really needs to be cared for. Uh, we're, we're just too many humans right now, and uh, whatever we can do to at least keep what's been saved saved mm -hmm. is key. I mean, if we can't protect more, then at least what we've protected to keep protected. And we've made a, a pretty big effort with the uh, Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, mm -hmm. you know, and, and awesome. we've got a uh, petition out and we've been involved with the, the political sides that are involved. And we've got a million four hundred thousand people that have signed the petition. Uh, and there's a lot of groups working on What's it. What's your involvement? We created this petition with change.org and then we were able to get a million four hundred thousand signatures. And so with that many signatures, uh, we can then go to uh, groups like NRDC or Back Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. That's a great group, by the way. I want to plug that Backcountry Hunters and Anglers if you want to get involved with a group that is supporting public lands and trying to protect public lands, that is a great group to be involved with. Um, and uh, anyway, so working with them and in, in different groups uh, using the fact that we have all these people that are willing to sign uh, and talk to, to political figures, uh, you know, we've, we've been pushing to save the refuge. And uh, so the documentary is called Nixon, the Unlikely Environmentalist, because uh, Richard Nixon was the only president in this country that actually made the environment the focus of one of his State of the Union addresses. Uh, and he actually did it with a couple of them. And he... Uh, as maligned as he is, is the founder of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. He is the founder of uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, as it is today. Uh, he signed into law the Endangered Species Act. He signed into law the Marine Mammal Protection Act. He signed into law the Clean Water and Clean Air Act. And so he is 
arguably the most important figure in modern environmentalism uh, in the U.S. And, uh, and, and the fact that he did all this and that after his impeachment it died is an important question that we're trying to ask. Uh, because if you were to create some kind of a mathematical curve to Nixon's progression of legislation, if you could extrapolate that curve somehow and say, okay, if legislation had continued along that route and along that the steepness of that curve to this day with ensuing presidents and Congresses, then we would not be facing the uh, climate warming problem that we have today. Hmm, I mean, there's, there's no, no way that we would be in it because the, the, the pace of environmental legislation under Nixon was such that it was made. And we have him to thank for the fact that, you know, that we've got the bald eagle there at, uh, near the White House that we get to see and all that because uh, all, all these animals uh, were uh, benefited by the Endangered Species Act, which really uh, saved a lot of what we have. So That's that, awesome. That's, so that's, the documentary is moving forward? Documentary is moving forward. And you're and the we're, producer? Hope, yeah, and we're hoping that we're going to be able to, to get it completely off the ground uh, sometime by the end of this year. Congratulations, man. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Very, very cool. You've hired a director and everything? No, we're not at that point yet. We, cool. we want to make sure that we have enough, enough funding cool. uh, to get there. And, and uh, so we're either going to have to do a, a, a trailer and go out and look for more funding, or we will get all the funding we need. And at that point, we'll be looking for a director and an editorial team and, and a research team. And, and uh, Is there a way someone listening, if, if they're interested in maybe funding this project or whatnot, is there an email address or something? Uh, they can get a hold of you, and and you okay. could you could put them in touch. But yeah, if, if someone's interested, uh, and, and at the moment we don't really have a space for smaller funding because it looks like we're going to get a, a blanket, sure, large funding. Uh, but we would be happy to to uh, connect with people and 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 let them know what we're doing and and keep them in touch and cool and. Uh, and if if it comes down to having to go a different route with funding, then we would we would love to have you know, a large group of smaller funders uh, cool. that make it possible. All right. Well, that's very exciting. Thank you. And uh, just to close it up, we're both wearing a little fur right now. You've got beaver. <laughs> we're sitting out on your porch to be COVID distanced. So you've got beaver uh, slippers. slippers on and I've got my raccoon uh, neck piece on. Yeah, your neck, right. neck piece. Thank you, Frank. Thanks, Philippe.